Hello, friends. You are listening to the Eucharist Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in downtown Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and we are so glad that you listened in. If you would like to join us, we are currently meeting on Zoom, so you can join us from anywhere in the world. We meet at 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, uh, Eastern Standard Time, and we have a, about an hour-long gathering and then a half an hour time afterwards where you can enter into a breakout group to uh, discuss things with either the same people every week or in a, in a group that mixes it up week to week. Uh, also, if you are a part of our congregation in the area of Hamilton, we also invite you to join in on Sunday mornings when we have a community check-in time from 10 to 10.30, and we have a kids program that runs from 9 to 9.30, 9.30 to 10 as well. So you can find all the details for that at eucharistchurch.ca. But for now, we're going to carry on with our sermon series, Reclaiming Christianity. Grace and peace. As Holy Week approaches, we are wrapping up uh, this chunk of our Reclaiming Christianity series, which uh, will pause for the Easter season to get into the narrative, get into the story and the season after Easter. Uh, but today we've got a fun one, Reclaiming Rules. Uh, so would you join me? Let's pray and uh, ready ourselves to hear from the Spirit as we uh, explore Christ, explore the scriptures and uh, move towards communion together. So God, we come to you exactly as we are, uh, tired, alone, with friends, with little newborn babies sitting on us. Uh, we come to you in these places and ask you to draw us together spiritually into one place in some strange, mystical way we can't understand. Make us one in this time and make us one with your son and make us one with you so that all might be wrapped up in your grace and your love in your goodness. Would we sense that today? Would we know that today? Would we trust that today? Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So when it comes to rules, the church has got quite a few. There's all the don't do's. Alcohol, dancing, movies, gambling, cannabis, swearing, wearing a hat in a pew. All the don't rules. And then there's all the do rules of Christianity. Kindness, mercy, forgiveness, generosity, Sabbath, witnessing, going to church on a Wednesday night at 8 p.m. even though your bed is screaming at you. There's no shortage of do's and don'ts within the Christian tradition and within the church. And the truth is that most of these rules are good things, right? They're actually good things. Most of us can agree that the do's are good things. Mercy, justice, we love all that stuff. But even the don't list... Even the don't list, I'm, which I have some caveats about, always at least point to something that is true. They were there for a reason. Even something like the prohibition of alcohol, you know, which seems kind of silly today and seems kind of fundamentalist, had its reasons. When the Methodist movement grew after the American Civil War and people had been in battle and were psychologically in physically damaged and destroyed and you know they would go out and drink and and abuse those around them you can understand why a movement like the temperance movement needed to exist and so while all of us might push against elements of the letter of the law i think at the same time we if we're perceptive at all would understand that there are reasons why these rules or these uh, wisdom traditions in christianity have emerged there are reasons for these the spirit of the law is often about not abusing your body, 
not using or abusing others, not being reckless with our time or our money or our tongues. And despite the fact that we all feel, you know, at some level we can see why these things are good, I've also just seen so many well-intentioned Christians crushed under the pressure to live up to what feels like unattainable ideals. And I would argue that most of the time, the issue with church rules isn't actually about any one rule, but about that human response, the way that human beings respond to the idea of rules. And I've seen this pattern play out hundreds of times in my own life throughout history. But to get to this idea of how we respond, we're going to have to go back a little while, 3,500 years ago, to the Israelites who have recently been set free from slavery. When God liberates the Israelites from slavery, the world stretched endlessly out before them. Infinite options, infinite choices, competing freedoms, countless preferences. And if they tried to move in every direction at once, to go everywhere, to do everything that anyone might want to do, it would have very quickly left them scattered and vulnerable. And they likely would have been destroyed by another tribe or maybe even destroyed each other. And so these people who have been given a lot of freedom, a ton of freedom, actually need limitations. They need direction. They actually need some rules. And so God gives them rules. Over 600 of them, uh, in the Old Testament to be particular, uh, but, and then especially 10 of them in particular, the Ten Commandments. And a lot of these laws that you can read in like Leviticus and uh, Deuteronomy, they seem really strange to us, but all of them are quite profound. Much like today, we might not always understand the letter of the law, but we still, when we read them, can get a sense of the spirit of the law. If you're interested in diving more into the weird biblical laws, I made a show a couple years ago called Holy Shift, which is on my YouTube channel. So you could watch that for a bit of a deeper dive into this. But some of the laws are strange and still very good. One of my favorites is this law that says you're not allowed to boil a goat in its mother's milk, which I like to say that there are some sins that I'm tempted to do and other ones that I just have never even thought of. Uh, or another one that, that says, you know, if your slave refuses freedom when they're offered it, that you should pierce their ear. <laughs> but if you dig into these, they actually make sense. I mean, boiling a goat in its mother's milk is just kind of cruel, so that makes sense. Uh, but, but all these rules, they really had reasons. One of the, the best examples of a rule that seems maybe a little barbaric to us, but, but makes a, a great deal of sense is in Exodus 21, when God says to his people that if you injure someone and you take out their eye, that... Uh, or sorry, if someone injures you and they take out your eye, that you are allowed to take their eye. And so it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, or a foot for a foot, which does seem a little barbaric to a lot of us. Like, why not just forgive somebody and be gracious and all that? But the, the, uh, come on, let's be real. Most of us can hardly make it through traffic without like honking and yelling at people occasionally. We're a little more primal than we think. And especially, you know, when we're talking about 3,500 years ago, when human consciousness is still just developing in some of these patterns, there needed to be a way to end the cycle of violence. That feeling of you hurt me, so I hurt you. You made a comment about me, so I make a comment about you. You gossip about me, so I gossip about you. We still do this stuff. Is it any surprise that they needed a way to calm the violence? And so what they did, which was really wise, is they said, 
if someone takes an eye from you, you don't get to take their like, I don't know, head or skull or something, you know, like you've got to keep it balanced. Somebody cuts off your hand, then their hand will be cut off. But it's an equalizing factor to stop that revenge cycle that so often happens in physical or psychological ways when we get into conflict with others. So all of these laws had a reason for being whether we understand them or not. But in the time between the giving of that law and Jesus's birth, there has been endless debates about the rules because this is what happens with rules. Rules always need to be discussed, debated, contextualized. You always need to reevaluate rules. And this becomes a dance for uh, the Jewish people, a dance for the rabbinic system, uh, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, a dance between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And by the time of Jesus, there's a lot of debate about all of these laws and debate about who is following them and who isn't. And the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are the ones most engaged in this. If you want a nice metaphor to visualize this, picture like old track and field high jump. Did anyone else do the old high jump thing in track and field? I was not very good at it. Apparently my wife was pretty good at it. So, I, uh, But, you know, they'd set the bar and you got to jump over it and clear it. And the question is always, where do you set the bar? Where should the bar be set and who is going to clear the bar? And so Jesus offers a ton of commentary on these laws and on these rules. And that's where we're going to go in our biblical text for today. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 5. <laughs> Claire, the most fun because of the big mat. When you were a kid and you'd landed on that mat, I would just lay there for a while. It was like a little nap after exercising. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I'm going to be reading again from this translation I've been reading from, where some of the words might be a little different. If there's something that needs explanation, I might pop out of the text for a second just to, in a word or two, explain what a, what a word in this translation might mean. But I like the way that it, it, it comes across here. So we are in uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, his greatest hits of his teachings. Jesus says, Do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is saying, I'm not here to destroy all those rules, all the debate, all of that. I'm not here to end it, but I'm here to fulfill it. So what does that mean, to fulfill it? Well, let's go on. He says, For amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not a single iota or a single seraph, kind of like a comma, a period, not any of the details of the text, must vanish from the law until all things come to pass. Whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches people to do likewise shall be called least in the kingdom of the heavens. But whoever performs and teaches it, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of the heavens." So you're kind of like, oh, I thought Jesus was merciful and kind and kind of buddy Jesus. But here he's kind of aggressive about this. Like you've, nothing's going to fade from the law. Then this line in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your uprightness, unless your goodness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of the heavens. You have heard it was said to those of ancient time. Now he's quoting the law, those, those uh, number of laws. 
He says, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commit murders shall be liable to judgment. Whereas I say to you that everyone who becomes angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever says raka, which means foolish or empty, worthless. Whoever says raka to his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says worthless, reprobate, shall be liable to enter Hinnom's veil of fire. That's when you see Gehenna, it literally means Hinnon's Valley Veil of Fire, which I like to say because it gets us kind of back in the text, which is sort of a place near Jerusalem where there was a whole bunch of history of violence and there was fire. It would be like me saying like, and if you call your brother a fool, you're going to fall into the Tower of DeFasco. You know that big flaming one up at the top? It's pointing to like a real thing. Who would want to be stranded in DeFasco? Well, that's where you're going to end up. If you call your brother a fool, that's where you're going to end up if you hate your brother. And so, uh, <laughs> let me just keep going here. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's not lowering the stakes like we might have expected. He's upping the ante. So it's not enough to kill. You also have to not be angry. And he keeps going with this upping of the ante. It's brilliant what he's doing here. Let's go to verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Whereas I tell you that everyone looking at a married woman, this is spoken to men, context and time, everyone looking at a married woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to falter, remove it and fling it away from you. For it is expedient for you that one of your members perish rather than your whole body be thrown into the fires of Tefasco. And if your right hand causes you to falter, cut it off and fling it away from you. It is expedient that one of your members should perish rather than your whole body should depart into the fires of Tefasco. And so he keeps going into this. He keeps laying out examples one after another. It's not enough to not have a fair. You can't lust after them. Bring the bar up. Don't swear by anything, he says after this. Don't make any oaths. Just make sure your yes always means yes and your no always means no. And if you're struck on the face, don't retaliate in violence, but creatively diffuse the situation by turning the other cheek. Oh, and you have to love. Not only those who love you, everybody does that. You have to love those who hate you. You have to love your enemies. And as if he hasn't driven this point home far enough, chapter 5 of Matthew ends with, Therefore be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the goal Jesus gave us, perfection. How's that going for all of you? <laughs> That's what he says. I got chapters and verses, and plenty of Christians have tried, haven't we? We have tried to be perfect. We have bounced our eyes and bit our tongues and smiled at everybody, and then even then, we fail. And so we beg for forgiveness, and we feel like dirt, Lord, we are just the wormiest worms that ever did worm, and we promise God, next time, God, we promise we'll try harder, just a fresh start, one more time, and I'll finally be perfect. But what if that's not the point of what Jesus is teaching here. What if Jesus isn't upping the ante in order to get us to try harder, but precisely to do the opposite? If you were at a gym, which you shouldn't be during COVID, but if you were at a gym 
and your personal trainer that you've hired to get you into shape so you can lose the COVID-19 told you to do 30 push-ups every day and said, if you do 30 push-ups every day, then you'll finally be in good shape. Well, you might go for it, right? You might do 30 push-ups every day, even if it was hard. But then if after a week of doing 30 push-ups every day, your trainer came back and said, you're almost there. Now you just have to do a thousand push-ups every day. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, <laughs> a thousand push-ups every day now. I'll try. <laughs> but it wouldn't matter how hard you tried. It wouldn't matter how many push-ups you did. It's impossible. You could all try really extra hard to do a thousand push-ups every day, and it's still not going to get you even a little bit closer to that definition of being in quote-unquote good shape. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point. Not to try so hard. Not to worry about being in good shape but instead to give up on that whole game of fitness. What if fulfilling the law wasn't just about Jesus living a life without sin? I think that's how a lot of us think about Jesus, fulfilling the law by following it perfectly. And yeah, I think there's space in obviously Christian theology for that. We believe Christ is the, the perfect faithful one. But what if Jesus is maybe also saying that he is going to fulfill the law by fulfilling it, by taking it to its natural conclusion. And what if its natural conclusion is that none of us are able to do it? What if none of us are able to do it? The rules can be an excellent tool for diagnosing what's wrong with us, but the rules can't save us. We are unable to follow them. We are unable to save ourselves. And so maybe, maybe we'll need to trust someone else to clear the bar for us. Someone else, the living God, revealed to us in Christ, who enters us by the Holy Spirit before we have even come close to clearing that bar. We fall into the God who can only catch us when we are finally ready or finally forced to fail. And this is the bedrock doctrine of the Christian faith, grace. And if I'm being perfectly honest, grace is the reason I'm still a Christian. I cannot imagine an idea more counterintuitive, more liberating, and more elegantly hidden in all of creation. The idea that when we fall, then we are rising. That when we fail, we succeed. When we confess, we are forgiven. That it is in giving that we receive, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. It is when we are not capable, when we are not capable. Anybody else feel not capable during COVID right now? Is there anyone else who every single day says, how are we doing this? This is my wife and I say every day to each other, this is an impossible situation. Well, if you finally feel like this is an impossible situation that you cannot win, you cannot pivot on, you are helpless to overcome it, then here's the good news. You are finally ready to meet your God. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a letter to the church in Rome, concluded his maybe most brilliant thought in all of the scriptures with this statement in Romans chapter 11, verse 32. It's absolutely brilliant. Paul says, For God shut up everyone in disobedience so that he might show mercy to everyone. It's brilliant. It's incredible. 
to make all people guilty so that all people are finally united. And then and only then, God can do the work of rescuing, restoring, and redeeming everyone and everything. It's like Jesus came along to the high jump bar and realized that as it was, some people thought they were close to clearing it. And then instead of putting it lower so that almost everybody could clear it, he did exactly the opposite and placed it so high that no one could ever clear it. So finally, we were all forced to be in the same place. And that place is the love of God. <laughs> if we were in real life, I'm sure you'd all be amen, hallelujahing, fanning yourself. I, I know, I know. It's, it's remarkable stuff here. What? A marvelous, <laughs> just enjoy. And we can just lay in the fun mat and enjoy it. This is the mystery of grace. The marvelous and strange and peculiar mystery of grace that was true then and beloved of Christ. It is true now. Because whether you'd call yourself a Christian or spiritual or even an atheist, the fact is we all have rules that we live by, don't we? We all have rules that we live by. There are things we don't want to do and things we believe we ought to do. And if you have any self-awareness at all, you will quickly realize that you are unable to live up to even your own standards of goodness. Because we all want to be ideal employees, but we often fail to follow through on tasks. And we want to be well-read, but we binge a lot of Netflix. And we want to be spiritual warriors, but then we forget to pray. And we want to be attentive partners, but we're distracted by all the stuff around us. We want to be loving friends, but we're often judgmental and jealous. We want to be great parents, but we're also irritated with our kids. We want to be good citizens, but we find ourselves avoiding the neighbors we don't like. We want to be people of justice, but sometimes we just feel overwhelmed by the state of the world. And then we feel bad that we didn't do more to help. And then we feel bad that we feel bad because other people have it so much harder than I do. And we end up feeling really bad about feeling bad about feeling bad about feeling bad. <laughs> yeah, we have rules. We have rules. From the classics like love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself to more modern rules like make the most of every day. And uh, are you doing the work? There is no shortage of laws we are supposed to follow. And here's the thing. They're almost always good things. But they're good things that we are unable to live up to. And that is what sets us free. Unable to live up to even our own expectations. Never mind the creators. We are left with only one uncomfortable and painful option we must declare moral bankruptcy. We must declare moral bankruptcy. We must admit that we are unable to do what we know we should do. And we can no longer pretend to be capable, hiding behind small gestures of generosity or public displays of social justice. Instead, we speak truthfully to ourselves, to our God, to our neighbors and we humbly fall down. And grace always catches us when we are finally ready to be caught. And that grace 
is what changes everything about us and about those around us. So to close out, I want to share three things I've noticed that change in me and change in others I know when they fall on grace and declare moral bankruptcy. So number one, when we declare moral bankruptcy and fall into grace, we are no longer judged. We are no longer judged. Is this thing that happens often at the LCBO. I don't know if any of you have found yourself there where you've got like your wine and your, you know, you've got like all these drinks. You're really just spending money in like really just kind of bougie ways. And, uh, you know, you get to the checkout line and they say, would you like to donate a dollar to help sick children? And you go like, Ugh, and you have that moment of panic. And I just found myself saying, no, but I promise I'm a really good person. <laughs> I just started saying that. I don't know why. I just kind of thought it was funny. I, I guess I would say it. Because deep down inside, I knew I wanted them to know. Like, I was like, I'll be like, no, I'm not going to. If I'm a really good person, I give to many causes. I'm very charitable. I always make eye contact with people on the street when they ask for a dollar. I'm a good person. <laughs> and we all carry around a narrative, don't we? That we ought to be good people. And of course, we're never doing quite enough to be the person we really should be. But grace sets us free. Grace sets us free and reminds us that God's embrace of us is a gift irregardless of our ability to live up to the rules. And that sets you free from the judgment of others, whether real or perceived judgments. That sets you free from the judgment of others and our endless attempts to appease the demands of others. We become free to say, I don't need to prove myself to others. We become free to say, I don't need to follow anyone else's rules. And that's really good news. Now, unfortunately, that comes with one uh, annoying caveat. When we declare moral bankruptcy, we are no longer judged by others, and we are also no longer able to judge others. <laughs> Because if we're going to declare moral bankruptcy, we can't exactly walk around lecturing others on their ability to follow or not follow the rules. Like if you just declared bankruptcy, you can't judge your friend's budgeting skills. And the truth is, even if you declared bankruptcy, you might be right that they're making a budgeting mistake, but if they don't want to hear it, you don't really have like the authority to go around lecturing people. You're not a financial expert. You're an expert at losing money, not making it. And being a Christian is kind of like that. Being a Christian means that you declare moral bankruptcy, but now you can no longer judge others for their sin, even if you're probably right, because you aren't an expert at not sinning. You're an expert at knowing that you can't keep all the rules, both God and your own. But here's the great news about that. Because someday it is likely that someone around you will realize that they too are unable to clear the high jump bar of life. And in that moment, when they realize they're unable to clear the bar, the last thing they'll need is an expert. The last thing they'll need is some good advice. They'll need good news. And they'll need someone who can show them in their own life what it looks like to stop playing the game of perfection to instead rest 
in the reality of grace. Okay, finally, last thing. When we declare moral bankruptcy and fall into grace, we are free to be good. We learn to listen to the Spirit of God. Knowing that any wisdom the Spirit gives us is for our own transformation. All right, hear that really clearly. Any law, any wisdom, any rule that we might follow is for our own transformation and for our own good. God isn't calling you to mercy, to kindness, or to forgiveness because it's bad for you. No parent would give their kid broccoli just because their kid hates it. And if you know not to give your kid food just because they hate it and it's no good for them, then certainly God knows not to give us things that we hate that are bad for us. No, God gives us his wisdom because it grows us, it liberates us, it empowers us. But we also know that following that wisdom is not what saves us. We don't live faithfully to earn forgiveness, but because we've already received forgiveness. We don't trust the Holy Spirit to earn God's love, but because we've already been loved. There's a famous quote from John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. And I've seen it used often by those who are leaving religion. Often online, I've seen it used by Catholics and Mormons, maybe more strict religious sects. And the quote is really beautiful, but the quote is, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And it's so sad to me that so many people see this as the opposite of the Christian message, because to me, that's about as thoroughly Christ-like as things get. That you and I don't have to be perfect because Christ was. And so we're set free to be kind and to forgive and to be good. And the message of the gospel is even better than that. Because we don't even need to be good. We don't even need to be good. I was talking about this with my daughter, Clementine, who's four. And she was asking me about whether people are good or bad. And we came up with this little trick where we would say, she'd say, Dad, are people good or bad? And then she'd go, no, 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 no. They're loved. Are people good? or bad. No, 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 no. They're loved. And so, beloved of Christ, as we end out this teaching, I'd like to invite you to do that together, where you are, to hold up both of your hands and to say this to yourself. Picture yourself asking God. Picture yourself, ask, I mean, you don't even need to picture yourself. Why don't you just ask God? What am I saying? Picture yourself asking God. That's like saying like, you know, Connor and Renee are sitting next to each other. Connor, picture yourself asking Renee. I really should just say, <laughs> just ask God. Hear this. Say, God, am I good or am I bad? And here's response in Christ. No, no, no. You're loved. Let's do it together. God, Am I good or am I bad? No. You're loved. You're loved. Amen.